I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. Zach has gone and found us a brilliant guest today. Zach, who have you found? Oh, I wanted to call this one Walk Like an Egyptian, but I decided that didn't entirely work and we don't want to go through my limited pop culture references. Today... It's the first time I've ever heard you make a pop culture reference. Yeah, and we've just run out of... And it's from my... the 80s. <laughs> I mean, there's that. There's Boney M with the Rasputin song. Um, and then there's ABBA with Waterloo, and, and that's it in terms of... Pop. Is Boney M even pop culture? We're way off topic. Shall we get Are back to history? Are you actually in your mid-50s? Yes. Okay. I was born in my mid-50s. Okay. <laughs> anyway. See, I should have been born in about 1951. Then I'd have been absolutely fine. I'd have been completely normal. Oh, dear. Poor Zach. Zach, but you have got friends. You've brought one of them today. Well, today we're joined by Dr. Michaela Luiselli, an Egyptologist from Birmingham University who specialises in ancient Egyptian religion and religious practice, as well as social identity. Now, she's written a whole load of books and articles on the topic, and this is going to be mind blowing. So she's written in English, French and German, and presumably also reads hieroglyphics. So (laughs) slight overachievement going on there. I mean, I can't even manage like a little bit of Spanish or French or anything. So this this is, this, I'm feeling deeply inferior here. But anyway, today she's going to take us through how the Egyptians worshipped and who they were worshipping. Michaela, it's lovely to have you on. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Well, consider I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for this invitation. And it's great. Well, let's hope. And I mean, it's far too generous what you said about me. But yeah, I guess there's some truth in it. But yeah. <laughs> Okay, shall we start right at the beginning? Um, We're talking about worship in ancient Egypt. I think one of the things we have to establish right at at the beginning of this interview is just how vast ancient Egypt is in terms of history. Most folks think ancient Egypt and probably just think of the Great Pyramids, Tutankhamun and Cleopatra, uh, which all covers about two and a half thousand years of history. So what aspect do you specialise in? Well, exactly. So my... um... My field of specialization is religion, is ancient Egyptian religion, and within this part is personal religion. So it may sound a little bit odd to say, okay, you have a specific 
theme of specialization within this nearly 3,000 uh, years of history. And yet within this field of specialization, you have also another that is even narrower, so to say, but yes, this is what happens with scholars. So you specialize and specialize more and more. So on a broad level, we can say, I am specialized in ancient Egyptian religion, um, and more particularly personal religion. So what did ordinary people believe, did, do, think, etc. as much as we can obviously recount this and based on evidence. And, and within this, on a, it's more, more on a specific period of time, which we call in Egyptology, the new kingdom. So we are talking about, in terms of chronology, we are talking about roughly between 1500 and 1000 BC, roughly. So the second half of the second millennium BC. And this is where my specialization is in religion in general. It obviously comprehends what? State temples. What was the so-called state religion? What do we know about the kings? What do we know about the big text, etc.? What do the official monuments tell us about the, the religion system? But my interest has always been in what actually did common people, ordinary people believe in. How far can we actually go to find out? really. What do we use as evidence? Mm. It's necessary to have evidence. Now it's a historical um, science of what do we use? Yes, so I hope this answers your first question. So how does religion work in this period? Because we're looking at a system that, uh, I mean, my first reaction was to call this a, a polytheistic yeah. religious system, i.e. more than one God, but I'm not entirely sure that that's the right term to use. So talk us through how, how religion works. Yeah. No, that's absolutely correct. We are definitely talking, looking at more than one God. And you actually, Zach, you actually mentioned the correct word. It's polytheismus, which is an ancient Greek word that means many gods, numerous gods. So, and this is the first thing that clearly differentiates ancient Egyptian religion from uh, Christian religion, Jews, and um, Islam. So, um, how did it work? Well, I suppose we want, the best way to do that is to look from two perspectives. One from the perspective of the so-called state religion, and on the other side from the perspective of common people, although the two things were not completely different, that's not separated, so that's an important thing to, to consider. Um, so not differently, if, if, we, if we want to start with what we are doing nowadays, say religious people in our everyday culture, everyday life, attend church, um, temples, etc., depending on what your confession is really. So what is delivered, so to say, from the central institutions and you, uh, act, um, and you access it, then your belief system, which we may want to call faith, etc., does develop, increase, etc., etc., and that was not much different at that time. So, um, how did it work? Well, we have to consider that in in Egypt we have an incredible amount all over these three thousand years of history, an incredible amount of gods, and we have temples dedicated being being built for them uh, all over Egypt. Um, in some cases, we will have gods that were more relevant, so to say, than others. But this is another question, so we'll see 
a little bit later in some sense. And in other cases, we have very local gods that were very venerated, very, very locally, but they all had the temples, shrines, etc., dedicated to them. In, um, in big state temples, like for instance, just to give you an example, the great temple of Amun-Re in Karnak, which is the ancient Thebes, basically nowadays Luxor, that was the temple of Amun-Re. We do have texts written on papyri that describe actually the daily temple ritual performed in these temples and what it and, and what it entailed. It entailed what? All sorts of rites being celebrated by high priests, by priests, whereby every single day the shrine of the god was opened through ritualistic gestures and actions. The statue of the god who used to remain hidden in the shrine in the temple was um, offered to. Uh, there were offering of incense, libations, food offerings, it were clothes were offered, all sorts of recitations also took place to actually re, um, renew the cult of this god every day on a daily basis. To do what? To make sure that the, that the god was actually positively uh, oriented towards the world, towards the king and the world. Now, we wanted to have those gods on your side, really. And, and, this is, and, and that was important because this is what happened on a daily basis in the state temples in Egypt. But common people did not have access to this. They were not allowed in the very, very center of these temples of any of the gods around. Um, so what did they have to do? Again, this is a little bit more complicated, but and we will see how, but there were all sorts of festivals, processions, where these statues were literally carried out, so to be seen. But we have to think about, uh, there were male gods, female gods, children gods, we have mixed forms of gods, there were mixed animals, mixed um, human, we have all sorts of possibilities of, uh, yes, of manifestations, of God that were meant to cover basically all the aspects of life in order to, it was a way clearly that the Egyptians had to make sense of the world around them by giving a God as, um, or a goddess really, as uh, the force in, in charge, so to say, of that specific reality, if that makes sense. Some gods are more prominent than others. You mentioned that. Do some get completely ignored? No, I wouldn't say so. No. I wouldn't say so, no. But you're right. Um, some were more important and more important, more prominent. What was that? Um, we, for instance, obviously dynastic gods. So the gods that were uh, considered the patron of a specific royal family, royal dynasty, they were uh, particularly prominent. Again, I go back to Amun-Re just because it's probably the most come, the most uh, best known one. Amun-Re was uh, a god that actually existed already in the form of a moon just slightly before the 18th dynasty. With the 18th dynasty, we're looking at roughly 1550 BC. And, uh, but then with the new dynasty, with the 18th dynasty, he was 
considered by the founder of this dynasty as being now the main god. So he became, from this moment onwards, until actually the very end of Egyptian history, he became the absolute central god um, in, uh, of the Egyptian pantheon. And together with him, his wife, the goddess Mut, and the son, the goddess, uh, the god Hons. The Egyptian family, so to say, the Egyptian gods in charge in, in a local place or, or a dynasty, they were all organized in this triad, we call them, of the father, the wife, and the child god. It was always this triad organization. And the so Amun-Re was absolutely relevant, was prominent as the dynastic god. He not only had this huge temple in Tarnak, which is potentially the one, Alex, you went, uh, you were just mentioning, but um, uh, temples scattered all over Egypt were built in his honour. And also, for instance, in Nubia. Nubia is the region that uh, corresponds to nowadays Sudan. Yeah. And during the New Kingdom, the Egyptians actually conquered Sudan. They occupied it and they brought with them also their religion. They imposed pretty much their religion, if I'm honest with you. And they built in temples also dedicated to Amun-Re. And that was a way to culturally control, obviously, those places. So you do have here for Amun-Re temples all over the countries. You have uh, funerary temples for the kings. That were associated their cult to the cult of Amun. But you also have in the single regions of the country, which we call in Egyptology gnomes. This mm. is again the uh, comes from ancient Greece. They had the local gods, pretty much local gods with the local shrines that were obviously the point of focus, I would say, more of common people on an everyday basis rather than the big state temples um, but they were but they did not surge at the level of relevance uh, of relevance of an Amun-Re for instance but that said I would not say the word ignored that's not how it worked but interestingly the cult of a god like Amun-Re which was obviously performed by high priests etc etc entailed also the development of this priest and the power that then became politically quite, like a clergy really, politically quite uh, strong and dangerous for the power of the king. So it's all sorts of aspects that are linked really to the cult of, um, of a god beyond the pure belief. I was going to ask about that actually, is this yeah. kind of a, a state-sponsored religion? Because you've got these vast temples, the money has to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. So presumably there's investment from the royal treasury to build these these vast complexes. Is, is that mm -hmm. fair? Absolutely. So it, it is correct what you're saying. Absolutely correct. But you have also to consider that, for instance, these temples were also an, were also proper uh, economic centres. So uh, around these temples, they were all granaries. They were workshops linked to that. So you don't have to we have to detach ourselves, and I'm talking here about these great state temples, yes? Um, we have to detach our view from the just houses of a god, that was the Egyptian term, actually, the house of the god, um, 
it was much more than this. By this, so the um, inclusion of these granaries, for instance, um, allowed for storage of food, of grain, etc., that was then redistributed to the population, and workshops, etc., that were also produced work, etc. So it was much, much. It was beyond the pure religious thing, and that's why then obviously also the power of these priests comes into place also in this occasion, for instance. But yes, so you're perfectly right. So there were, um, interestingly, so there were all sorts of, consider for instance, much of the imperialism that we have in Egypt in the New Kingdom towards Syria, Palestine and Nubia was actually meant to one of the many aspects were actually to ensure access to gold mines, to Turkish mines, etc. That were again precious materials needed for their temples, for their own uh, tombs of the kings, etc. etc. But that was actual absolutely a, an essential aspect. Now, why? Because in the case, for instance, of Amun Ray, the um, the power, the final power of the king on earth came, was believed to come from the God. Mm. And therefore, this cult for the God had to be absolutely um, waterproof, to say really, really blunt. It has to be, had to be intense all the time. And it was essential that this, um, that the power of Amun Rei as the dynastic god and his family, etc., was actually um, communicated to society, to the closer society, yeah. And what are these gods meant to be like? Are they a bit like the, the Greek-style gods mm -hmm. in the sense that some of those gods were pretty dodgy characters? And talk us through why some of them are sort of half-human, half-animal. Yeah. Um, well, I'll start with your second question. I would say, and then go back to the uh, first one because it, they're quite linked. I remember so the, there's a female god with horns, isn't there? She's part cow. Correct. Yeah, that is Hathor, correct. Uh -huh. Yeah, the goddess Hathor. Yeah, correct. Or we have, for instance, um, a quite famous one is Anubis, who has uh, the a male god with the jackal head. So why? Um, right, okay. Uh, we have, there are two things here to consider. First of all, the Egyptians believed that specific animals were manifestation of specific gods. So, for instance, if I go to uh, Anubis, the Egyptian believed that uh, in the in the jackals they used to see around the cemeteries in the Western Desert, that was the manifestation of the god Anubis. So we can have monuments, for instance, private monuments, where we have literally perhaps just entire proper jackals being represented and being Anubis, or the, um, yes, the uh, half uh, male, half head with the with a jackal. Now, Anubis was actually, uh, for instance, he was venerated, his cult centre was in... Um, Abydos, which is in Middle Egypt, on the west bank of the River Nile. And he then became the god of the mummification. So it was obviously in, was clearly linked 
to the um, to the funerary beliefs. Why representing them half uh, human, half animal? Because that was the way the Egyptians wanted to visually express or believed to express to be able to express visually the incredible nature of these gods. So it was a way to, and it's something that is actually explained well in text, but that was a form of visualization to visualize them, was to actually make sure the complex nature of a god, the complex theology of a god, the complex nature of a god was actually represented visually. And because they were considered such complex um, forces, so to say, entities, that only these mixed forms could actually um, fully represent their um, total complexity. We have another case, for instance, the god Horus, who was a falcon god, who was the manifestation of the sun god at uh, a midday for instance, and we can have, and it was essential because it was the god protecting the kingship, for instance. So you um, you have it in all sorts. So the, the living king was considered also Horus, who meet in Egyptian myth, was a son of Osiris, etc., etc. So we, it takes us a very, 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 very long way. It's a highly complicated thing. But the main reason, I would say, if we want to narrow it really down, why this different shape? It was really to make sure the complex nature of these gods were actually um, visualized and expressed in full. Um, were some of them dodgy? Yes, they were. I mean, uh, generally, we can say that all gods were considered to be potentially very dangerous and had to be appeased, hence these daily rituals and all sorts of rituals and offerings, etc., to make sure they actually could protect and keep being beneficial towards um, humankind, really. This reminds so, me of that game, Pharaoh, that I was obsessed with, because if you didn't build enough temples and have yeah. enough religious festivals, the game would trash your city and it used to drive me nuts. And you'd be trying to juggle like six gods at once and keep them all happy. So they integrated <laughs> it to the game and it was a nightmare. I don't know that one. <laughs> yeah, it was like it's like a where you build your own ancient civilization and you start with yeah. a few huts by a river and that's fine. But by the time you've got a massive city and they're building pyramids, you've got all these gods smiting your city if you don't have enough festivals and stuff. No, but it's, it's not very, far away, actually. Very time-consuming. <laughs> but it's not far away, actually, in some respects. So, but this is the very essence why all this cult had to be actually constantly performed. So, for instance, one case which is quite uh, striking, in my opinion, is the case of the goddess Sechmet. The goddess Sechmet was a lioness goddess. And now I'm not going into the complexity of the myth because that would be boring, but to cut a long, long story short, Sechmet was represented as a lioness or a female with lion um, head. And she was considered an incredibly dangerous um, deity. Obviously, you know, 
think about the association of lions, wilderness, etc., etc. So we have to consider that this way. No? Similarly, like with the goddess, uh, the scorpion goddess. So all this, it was a way for the Egyptians to actually make sense of the world around them. So Sehmet was, because of the link to this myth, was also considered to be the cause for epidemics, for illnesses, etc., etc. So there were highly complex rituals that had to be performed um, in order to appease her, to make sure she actually was calm and would not rage against humanity and would not be devastating or destructive. Um, and again, so this is a good uh, example, in my opinion, for, for this. But it was all about how to appease them, how to make sure they were positive, they were beneficent, etc. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. It kind of sounds like ancient civilization meets the Godfather, doesn't it? There's kind of this mafia-esque thing, you know, it's, it's almost like trying to bribe your god to... It's <laughs> yeah. actually a nice way. I never thought about it, but yeah, why not? Yeah, but clearly we don't have the... I would say there was not this idea of no matter what he's there it's not our like our christian god for instance that is was clearly a be very very careful and this is something actually if i may interrupt you that actually goes um into the realm of personal religion i may just bridge over my uh, more field of um specialization because it has to do exactly with what you mentioned zach so we do have for instance some dating to the new kingdom again we have some private monuments, uh, beautifully written out in hieroglyphs, obviously. So there were some small stele with scenes of a, an individual in front of a community or family, etc., offering to a god. And these were accompanied by a more or less long text with a more or less complex prayer dedicated in the local shrine and you have to think that probably that was part of a community celebration of some sort. Now some of these texts actually mention is quite interesting because the author so to say the, the donor the, the who had commissioned this text actually admits in front of everyone having done something really bad against a specific god and as a result or having done something bad in life it's not always clear what but what this person says is i have been punished i have been punished by god so and so and as a result i suffered a lot um but after having called back to the god having asked for forgiveness for um etc then that god was positive again with me was uh was calm again with me and i want to warn you all 
beware of him. And basically the message is behave properly, follow the instructions. We have um, the mentioning in this text of the instructions of this God, how actually to lead your life properly. It's incredible because we can in some way relate so much from our own culture. Um, and that goes exactly in your direction. You want, uh, you actually feel if something bad is happening to me, that all these negative forces around me, actually there is a reason why things are happening to me. If I am ill, if I have misfortune, there is a reason. And the reason is this, some, someone is against me. Why? Because I did something. That is a, quite an interest. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Think, think, um, Is it about control as well then, religion, on the part um, of the state? What do you mean? Like by by scaring people with what happens if you don't live your life as you should and you don't behave and bad things will happen that, to you okay that's an excellent question that is an excellent question um it's difficult to say really it's difficult to because you know the problem is we do have to think we do have to base our conclusions on the evidence that we have mm. and there was certainly certainly and it's interesting that you mentioned this alex because there have been some studies along the line. There was certainly, especially in the areas close to state temples, there was certainly a way of or a reason from the state central power to actually link people or, or keep the people around actually very close to the central ideology, for sure. Um, However, in the case, for instance, of this thing that I just said, um, that I mentioned, these two gods who are mentioned by this person who actually misbehaved and admitting having misbehaved and is proclaiming the power are the goddess Merzeger, who is a snake goddess, very local, very, very local. It's not one of the major goddesses. However, she was the patroness goddess of that small settlement. And the god Ptah, who was a more central god, but all venerated locally. So it could be, it could be that the local priesthood actually wanted in some way to guide the, to scare, to guide, you know, to uh, exercise some form of control on the life of people. That is absolutely possible. Very tricky to prove, 
based on evidence, very tricky if you see what I mean, but uh, it's something that is definitely probably had, uh, was in place. So because you have to consider, and that has been also big debate. We, so we don't have evidence for this personal contact or personal, I, I like to call it search for God. Mm. Um, not, not everywhere in Egypt, many, many places across a whole, uh, across a whole Egyptian history with some peaks in, of the resources in some places. But what has been noticed is, for instance, that in settlements that were away from state temples, the, um, the evidence base is very, very slim, very slim. Now, does this mean there was no religion on a daily basis whatsoever? We don't know this because we can't completely um, deny the fact that there may have been prayers going on, some form of local community um, celebrations that have not gone down in evidence. So the fact that we don't have any written or visual sources doesn't mean a lack of evidence doesn't mean a lack of reality, but we yeah. can't prove it. And that's what makes it complicated. But it's an excellent question, yeah. So what do they base? I mean, you've talked already about, you know, people kind of encouraging one another to um, worship a cult yeah. properly based on their own experiences. But do we have, you know, a, a kind of core text or core texts, like, you know, a, a, an ancient Egyptian equivalent of a Bible or a Quran during this period? No, we don't. So, um, and that's another complex thing. So, Egyptian religion is what we would call a cult religion. It's a religion based on cult. Um, so, the communication with the gods was entirely down to performing these rituals, cults that had different forms, whether they were in a temple, whether they were performed at home, etc., etc. But the cult of the gods was essential to keep this dialogue, this connection going. Um, we do know they were reciting prayers. We know that. They are also mentioned, interestingly, in private letters. Private letters, for instance, tells us people asking someone else to go actually to a temple and give an offering on behalf of him because he was in a bad situation also and reciting some prayers. So we have all of this, but we don't have a book. We don't have a set of laws, so to say, of instructions in that sense. We don't. The theology of um, the gods is led down in hymns. So hymns, religious hymns, are our own main, potentially only source for reconstruct the theology, the nature of a god, as in hymns. These hymns were recitations where they all emphasized the credible nature of this god. And all of the characteristics are mentioned in these hymns. But we do not have a canonized book, so to say, that did not exist. And this is what makes it 
in some way very complicated. But this is what ancient religions were really. So what we have with the Bible, as you say, or the Quran, um, it's not something that you will find in ancient civilizations, really. So the cult is essential, which is why we study a lot, um, you know, shrines, cults, evidence, what do we have, etc., etc. So, for instance, what I have studied were many, we have an incredible amount in Egypt of prayer, of personal prayers, absolutely, or hints to prayers, etc. This is what I've said, but it's nothing. We have recurring formulas, we do have it. So we know, for instance, how did such a encounter with a god in a shrine happened? What? How did that happen? What were the formulas that were recited? We know this, but that does not is not the equivalent of a book, really, of a canonized book. Yeah. Before we go on to how individual people did it, Zach, I know where you're going next. You're going with the mummy, aren't you? Yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> the Book of the Dead. What's what's the deal with the Book of the Dead? Where does it all come into this? Yeah, so the Book of the Dead is a very, very misleading, actually, very misleading uh, name. And I actually, it's good that you mention it with the mummy, etc., because it really is, it drives me crazy as much as it's nice <laughs> and easy. <laughs> it drives me really crazy. So what's the Book of the Dead? So first of all, again, the name is misleading. It is called Book, but there is no author. There's not one author who actually wrote this book, so to say. The Book of the Dead is a collection of funerary spells that was uh, developed in the New Kingdom again. However, um, many, many of the spells of the Book of the Tech, uh, Book of the Dead, sorry, did exist prior to the New Kingdom in the so-called Middle Kingdom. Uh, and were written on the inside and partly outside of the wooden coffins. So, and they were actually called the coffin texts. Now, there has been a tradition of, you know, transmission of these formulas that then eventually were put together in this long papyrus rolls and this collection of funerary spells given to the dead in the kingdom to allow them to empower them really in the journey in the afterlife. So it all stems out of the fact that people were used to be exposed to all sorts of malignant forces on a daily basis, illnesses, dangers, misfortunes, etc., etc. But on a daily basis, they had their own personal gods to help them. Again, this is all documented. They could perform all these rites, etc that we have just been seeing. However, what happened when that was no longer possible because one was dead? So these formulas, so the idea was that in the afterlife, these malignant forces took the shape of demons. And in order to face those demons and to fight, to, 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 yeah, to survive the attacks really, one had to have the correct spells the correct funerary spells and that is what the book of the dead is all about so we do not have for instance we have a humongous amount of spells of uh, versions of book of the dead but none of really um, exactly the same as each other and we do not have an author we don't we have some scribes that actually at the end of the papyrus say i have copied this precisely 
from the beginning to the end. And it's exactly like the model I have copied down. And yet you can have parts completely missing. We call them chapters in the Book of the Dead. So it's, um, yeah, so that is where it comes in place. I'm afraid there's absolutely nothing to do with the mummy or anything like that. Sorry to take that magic off you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you research or try to research as best you can how normal people interacted with religion in ancient Egypt. Do you find a difference between rich and poor in terms of how much they worship? Well, that's another excellent question. I would say yes, definitely. Mm. Um, And again, the main thing is down to evidence, totally evidence. So um, you have to consider, first of all, that we have to do a step towards what we call literacy in ancient Egypt. Yeah. So if you think nowadays, luckily in our Western culture, everyone can read and write, right? Yeah. But that was not the case. We have a minimum, incredible minimum amount of people who were able to read and write. So, and those who could not went to scribes, to the local scribes, had to pay, obviously, for something that actually be written down. So, and this is where our first problem comes into place. So we do have people who were wealthier or, for instance, whose profession brought them close to scribes who actually could commission monuments with lengthy texts telling telling us nowadays what actually that belief system was. Um, but people who did not have that luck, who were not in as wealthy, of them we do not have anything. We may have votive offerings, so just, you know, uh, offerings, um, for instance, the goddess you mentioned before, Alex, the goddess Hathor, mm. had an important temple dedicated to her in Der el Bahri, which is again in the ancient Thebes region. Uh, region. And in uh, that temple, uh, there have been um, discovered a huge amount of votive offerings dedicated to her. Some of, and they were all, it's been a very, very long uh, um, research on this building offering, excellent research. And the, the common theme behind them, just really, really cut down a long, long story short, were desire for fertility. It was obviously very important, you know, to uh, have children, because you have to think the child mortality was so high, etc. Mm-hmm. That was a very important aspect. So that was the common theme. But the type of, the, the level we have of those sportive offerings is very different. We have very, very simple ones with no text whatsoever, nothing, just dedicated to this shrine. Uh, probably they would cost very little, as opposed to actually lengthy text, monuments, complicated, which clearly are the reflection of wealthy people. So, again, we definitely a difference, but a difference that is down to what was the accessibility of sources uh, to actually be able to express one's religiosity or one's request to a god. Um, and again, how much did people who were not uh, 
and, and that is my thing. How did people who were not necessarily out of the profession, how were they aware of this religious system? Think about, for instance, children. This is something I've researched on, which I really got quite passionate about. Children are what we could call in archaeology a voiceless social yeah. category. We have nothing. We have some, if we are lucky, we have some toys, fine. Um, but what we know about children is filtered from the adult perspective. So we can find them represented on monuments, for instance, with their family members. But again, what did they actually know? How did they actually learn about these things? And yet at some point, these children became adults and they could actually express their own religiosity. So what are the steps behind? And then what can we consider? We have to immerse ourselves in their daily life. For instance, in an average settlement, where there was a high level, again, of child mortality, illnesses of all sorts of kinds, malnutrition. We know that there were doctors, so to say, that were, came and performed some... Ma uh, we have um, magic uh, papyri with magical spells that were recited over a ill person. So we can think that where clearly they did witness this kind of things. And in this magical spells uh, gods were called in for instance so they listened to this this spells clearly there were funeral funerals going on so they knew there there's some this death going on and what happened there was an acquisition of religious knowledge i would say by practicing but we don't have anything really written out so it's something that we have to, always in egyptology to consider the bias we have due to the sources and um, and what do we do with this bias? So yes, there was a difference clearly between rich and poor on many, many, many levels. And ultimately it's very, very difficult, very difficult to get down to the lower class of society. Very difficult to actually, um, yeah, to find really what they actually believed what do we have that is something we have to live with really and you kind of touched on this a little bit already in terms of different regions have different emphases but across if we look at chronologically religion isn't constant either okay. is it and we do get changes so folks might be aware of Akhenaten uh, yep. probably ruined the pronunciation there um, and his reforms Akhenaten being the pharaoh who preceded the more famous Tutankhamun uh, some people argue that he was his dad as well mm -hmm. um what changes does he make and why, perhaps more crucially, make those specific changes? I just say as well that I love him. And can you explain to people why he's got a little podgy belly and you can't tell whether he's a man or a woman from looking at his statues as well? Ooh, that is really tricky to explain in a few words. Yeah. I'll do my best. <laughs> I'll do my best. So let's start, let's start with Zach, shall we? And then I come to your love for him. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Akhenaten, yeah, no, uh, like you're perfectly right, changes and differences are not only in regions, but they're also chronologically, absolutely true. So Egyptian religion was never exactly the same from the, like art, for instance, all the Egyptian statues look all the same. Well, guess what? They were not. There were changes, modifications, etc. Akhenaten's reform 
definitely is one of the most important ones. So with Achenaten, we are more precisely in roughly 1350 BC. Okay, we are in this period of time, 18th dynasty. And Achenaten comes to the throne as the successor of a pharaoh who's called, was called Amenhotep III. His so, name wasn't Akhenaten, was it? He correct. changed that as part Correct, of the exactly. So, mm. exactly. So, he was the successor of Amenhotep III. Now, Amenhotep means Amun, the god Amun, is appeased. Okay? Is pacified, appeased, etc. Hotep uh, means peace, etc. So, when he became king, in the first four years of his reign, he was in Karnak, he was crowned in the temple of Karnak, following the tradition as his predecessors in the 18th dynasty. And he was crowned with the name of Amenhotep IV. Okay, so we call it Amenhotep IV, it's a bit complicated, the royal name, but his name was Amenhotep. Um, he then changes. So in, in year five, he abandons completely Thebes, he abandons Karnak, and he moves the religious capital to a, com to a completely new town, which he um, found on virgin soil, northern of um, Thebes in Middle Egypt, which is called nowadays Telelamata. And the, he names that town that he lets build within a few years only, very, very fast. So built on purpose for a god of whose un absolutely uniqueness he proclaims. And this god was the god uh, Aten. Now, the god Aten or Aten, you will find it both ways, is actually a sun god. And sun god that was not new, already existed at name, but it it was the, again, you remember I was talking about the manifestation of god, no? There was the sun god in the manifestation of the solar, of the sun disk, literally what you can see of the sun. And so he changes then his name into Ach en Aten, which means uh, the one who is useful for the Aten. So it's a, basically a servant of the Aten. And in so doing, what does he do? He has many, many, part of many changes he did. So he basically closed all, he declared, closed all the um, traditional cults of all the other deities. So the, he proclaimed this unique god as being the only god actually to be uh, to be venerated. Um, he and his wife Nefertiti and their daughters were, uh, he self-proclaimed basically himself as the only priest of this god. And therefore we have many, many images that were found in Telelaman of him, his family, family venerating this god. He changes all sorts of things. He changes, for instance, remember you asked me about the iconography of gods with half man, half animal, etc. Well, he cancels also this. 
um, Aten is now um, represented only as a sun disk with sun rays. At the end of this race, there were hands where that were donating the sign of life to Achen Aten and his family as the only intermediary between this only God and humans. So um, there's this shift in religion towards something that we may want to call monotheism, but it was not monotheism. Um, I'll come to this in a minute. And then we will, we have this new foundation of the town. We have the closing of all the um, traditional cults in all over Egypt. We do have even um, forms of iconoclasm. Iconoclasm means of cancellation, of destruction of iconographies of the ancient traditional gods where the faces were, um, or even their names were cancelled. So there's a sort of really quite heavy action uh, going on against the traditional um, cult. I say Why? I love yeah. him, but it, it's because it's catastrophic, isn't yeah. it? And controversial. Yeah. And he's obviously not very popular. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, the interesting... This is like Henry VIII on yeah, speed, basically. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the interesting thing, exactly this, so, interestingly, Alex, in Tel El Amarna, that's an interesting thing. So, he built the temples for this god, etc., etc. However, part of Tel El Amarna uh, was built was also sort of uh, uh, what we call a workman village. Well, the workmen that used to work on the tombs, for instance, of Tel El Amarna, of the temples, they used to live there. And interestingly, in the workman village, Actually, their families continued um, venerating the normal gods in uh, the household gods, or what they knew before. So, how much was actually did they actually enter the lower level of society? Difficult to say. Yeah. Okay. So it seems to be a very elitarian thing, very political thing, and politics was probably the main reason why he did it. I love as well. Um, so the thing about the so a podgy belly in Egyptian yeah. representations is yeah. flattering because it it signifies the ability to give birth to a child in that. And he even like talking about Henry VIII, he had an ego. But my God, so Arkhanaten basically was pimping himself out as everything to everybody, wasn't he? So he was male and female, and that's why he has very um, metrosexual features and a podgy belly in his statues. Yeah, well, we can possibly, possibly, that could yeah. possibly, his iconography is definitely something striking, absolutely, it's completely different, and what we see then after with Tutankhamun, his successor, is the reverse, now we go back to the tradition, we don't want that anymore. Um, so, there have been all sorts of speculation, why this, yes, was he both, was he male and female, was it something some people have argued it actually was an illness that actually his him and his family members because don't forget it's not only Achenaten, no? it's also Nefertiti, whom yeah. we know from this beautiful bust now in Berlin. But if you look at the representation, her their daughters with this elongated crane, it's um something that it actually affects the whole family, so to say. 
Um, Do they and, think it could be inbreeding, I read? It, there's been all sorts of things. And there yeah. have been also some, um, you know, for instance, interestingly, many years ago now, they have done a CT scan, 3D CT scan on the... Um, mummy of Tutankhamun. Now, Tutankhamun is part of his family, obviously. And they had called a guy to actually reconstruct his, um, his face. And they saw, okay, actually, it, it, this, the crane actually does look like, the skull does look like actually has been elongated. So it's, there's been all sorts of things. But as a matter of fact, I would say what we can retain is that he clearly wanted a break with this tradition so he wanted actually to be portrayed in a completely different way now interestingly the reign of Akhenaten and that is the way one should one should love him actually is was very very peaceful in some way very compared to what happened before and after very very peaceful peaceful way he couldn't be less bothered by any wars etc and it was actually a part of a really incredibly international life in the whole ancient Near East, actually. Um, but as you say, he was not very popular. And actually, within 3,000 years of history, the Telelaman experience was very short, very, very short indeed, mm. uh, and was not popular at all. He was then. After that, it was absolutely, um, there's been a process of, damning his memory really and can't deleting completely his memory but he did something that was extraordinary for that time Not yeah i think he's great I yeah, was, yeah, yeah. He was the absolute nutcase so the the point of the obelisks i believe is that they are incredibly sacred so there's um a pharaoh who comes to the throne after his stepmother and he doesn't want to knock her obelisk down so he just builds like walls all around them because he hates her so much and tries to write her out of history is that Hatshepsut that was Hatshepsut yeah. right yes perfectly correct yeah they're bonkers it's like the best soap opera ever the Egyptian pharaohs I love it <laughs> that's true yeah yeah <laughs> so we've gone from the godfather through the money through the mummy to EastEnders yeah, that's, that's a very interesting little <laughs> arc for an interview. Michaela, this has been absolutely fascinating. Please do come back at another point and talk to us more about all of this. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.